Morrison cuts wages, jobs and retirements. Unions win domestic violence leave. Election 2022. And the good news is about no more rats on an Australian island. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am Ben Davison and joining me from Scott Morrison's current seat of Cook is the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon and On, a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults, the love of my life, the twinkle in my eye, Van Badham. How are you, Van? Hello, everyone. Hello to Ben. Ben is being particularly lovely because he knows, as listeners to this show know, that I am one of those people absolutely blessed, yes, I have said it ironically, with my depressive disorder and I've been having a bit of an episode, haven't I, Ben? Yes, look, I think you have and I think it is one of those weeks where where many people uh, like us uh, face the kind of anxiety and depression monsters that that a, a federal election, a particularly close federal election, can, can kick off. And I, I've seen some people write about this uh, in the last couple of days about how to channel our stress, how to channel our anxiety, how to, how to, how to manage our depression in, in this environment because it is... It is difficult, and you've got lots of lots and lots of things going on, obviously in your life uh, uh, as well. So I know all of our listeners are thinking of you, and and certainly you know I am as well, darling. You're the best. Yeah. And so are you, listeners. You guys are also the best. Shall we get into a ruthless dissection of the news as it stands? Yes, because it is Wednesday the 18th of May and there are three more days until the 2022 federal election is finally over, a marathon of a campaign. But really, it boils down to some pretty basic themes. There's lots of things that everybody sort of agrees on and then there's a few things where there are clear points of difference. One of the points of difference, Van, that I'm really keen on is that Morrison has cut wants to continue to cut wages, jobs, and the retirements of Australian people. And, of course, today we've seen terrible wage figures come out that show just how devastating Morrison's policies have been on the pay packets of Australian workers. And, quite frankly, it's appalling, absolutely appalling figures. The worst in 20 years, they're saying. The worst in yeah, 20 years. Yeah, it is. It's shocking. I'm looking at the figures right here because Ben supplied them because he's great. And I just want everybody to to put this into some perspective. Like the consumer price index, how fast consumer goods are rising, is at 5.1%. But wage growth is only at 2.4%. That seems like a bit of a gap, Ben. Yeah, it's a pretty big gap, and frankly, there are some there are some parts where uh, it actually gets even worse. So that's a real wage cut of two point seven percent. And in the public sector, if you're a public sector worker, your wages have only gone up by two point two. That means public sector workers, the hundreds of thousands of people in the public sector, have had wage cuts of nearly three percent. You know that that's that's a lot when you think about. Let's say, and people say, "Oh, the average wage is not indicative, and it's too high because it gets lifted by executives and all the rest of it." But the average wage in Australia is about ninety grand. Now, three percent of ninety thousand dollars is is a big chunk of money that people are going backwards. In fact, the ACTU has done this calculation and done it very quickly today. a year, people are now going backwards. Yeah, and in the budget that Morrison handed down in April, splendid economic manager that he is, the claim was that CPI at this point would only be 4.25%. So they have massively underestimated what the actual impacts of how they're running the economy are. And it means that wages are going backwards. And we know, like one of the announcements they made 
this week, which we're going to talk about in more depth, is that they're going to make even more cuts to the public sector. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think it's really interesting when we look at Morrison's budget uh, and how badly he's mismanaged the economy. I mean, we will talk about the public sector cuts in their in their own right. But of course, the expertise in the public sector has been gutted. We know there's been outsourcing, contracting to multinational corporations. And, and in a way, you can kind of see how if you destroy the capacity of the public service to actually provide good information, uh, you're going to end up with garbage coming out, garbage in, well, garbage this is, out. This is the thing. The budget claimed that wages would be up 2.75%. And of like, course, there's, we keep getting told by Morrison and has have been told by him over the course of the campaign trial that the economy is in great shape and he's doing such a great job and he wouldn't change anything and he's a superior economic manager. Simultaneously, the electoral message, and this has been echoed by John Howard, and my genuine sympathy goes out to any of those Australians who've received the telecampaign call, which is a pre-recorded message from John Howard telling you, former Prime Minister John <laughs> Howard, and my envy towards people who didn't live through the Howard era is pretty high. Howard saying, oh, you know, the world's a complicated place and now is absolutely no time to change government. Which is interesting. I think we mentioned this on the show before. It's actually a line from Waleed Ali, who I disagree with on most things, but he is right. Like, what a case the Morrison government makes. Either everything is going spectacularly well, in which case we shouldn't change the government, or things are kind of disastrous, in which case we shouldn't change the government. And right now, apparently things are going well. Morrison is a fantastic leader, but simultaneously he is going to change and because things are a bit unstable, he should stay in government. That is literally the electoral pitch on the eve of the election from the Morrison government. I just, I just, I wish, sometimes I wish I had the capacity to create that level of compartmentalism in my brain where, you know, he's clearly built these concrete walls, these concrete rooms, possibly padded rooms in his own head where he just seems to believe all these contradictory things all at once. All at once. Speaking in tongues to himself. And it is. It is really bizarre because, you know, the worst wages result in 20 years, the, the budget was only handed down in April, they've already missed those uh, inflation targets, they've missed the wage targets, you know, apparently the economy is going great, but of course it can't afford a $1 an hour increase in the minimum wage. There are hearings today where the Morrison government could have said, could have said, Yes, put up the minimum wage. Uh, of course, last week we know he was fighting against an increase in the minimum wage. He wants a real wage cut. He's he's I, I can't I can't fathom the political calculus that says we're going to go into the election and we're going to advocate for wage cuts. We're going to deliver wage cuts in the two years before the election, and we're going to promise more wage cuts if we get reelected. That's what he's doing. It's it's yeah, a I, I mean, it's strategy. difficult. It's difficult to comprehend. I mean, I think it's just sheer shots bar. Like if you keep going, I'm a really great economic manager, and I'm telling you to take a wage cut. Like if you say that with a, enough conviction, is it likely that people will believe it? Oh well, he seems to know what he's doing. Like uh, maybe he'll maybe he'll know. Like maybe that's what we should do. I don't know. Like I think a lot of people are so turned off by politics and so turned off by the economy, like, you know, and so, sorry, not turned off, but excluded yeah. from any discussion about the economy. I mean, you and I may, you know, like curl up around the fire, you know, spread the beautiful blankets out across our knees and go, darling, have you listened to the latest consumer price index figures? <laughs> but, you know, not everybody knows what a consumer price index is. And quite yeah. frankly, you know, the media discussion around economics in this country doesn't make it any more accessible to people. We don't really create space in the media to explain what words and terms mean and how they fit into everything else. I was opining about this the other day about one of the things I remember from my childhood about the Hawke-Keating era 
was that when Hawke and Keating were in government and doing massive things to policy and government, the economy, negotiating the accord and everything else, they spoke to Australians like adults about what was going on in the economy so people would understand the decisions that were being made. And we don't really have that anymore. We sort of slip past what the words that get used mean. So, you know, what does a wage cut mean in real terms? I mean, one of the reasons why you and I started this podcast is we wanted to have an accessible conversation about the issues that affect people that didn't treat anybody like an idiot, but also didn't treat people as if they were the 1% of hacks in the community who were necessarily up on everything all the time. Yeah, and it's really interesting because, you know, today I, I did, I was fortunate enough to be able to watch Albanese's National Press Club speech. We'll talk a bit more about the detail of that later. But one of the tweets that people, um, or quite a few people were saying, you know, look, the only people who have time to watch National Press Club in the middle of the day are people who are highly tuned into politics uh, and it's not swing voters. And that's that's really true, right? And that's And as you say, that's why, you know, we watch it so you don't have to. Um, not saying you shouldn't, if you can, do try and get into it, but it it is it is often at inaccessible times. Sometimes these things are discussed on channels where you need a subscription. The language is often inaccessible, and quite frankly, they use jargon and um, abbreviations that, unless you know, you know, unless you've done an MBA or an economics degree, you're not going to know what they mean. And they do it deliberately. Like I just want everybody, Richard Dennis is a friend of the show and of ours who's an yeah. economist who's great, has this great book called Econobabble, which I seriously recommend everybody get because it just takes you through what all the terms mean. And the reason why they use Econobabble is to display their superior expertise. It's a form of del- deliberate political bamboozling of the electorate. Oh, well, Martha, if the job's on return Mishmerg, shmerg, 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 shmerg figure is blurbity blurg. Then we will reap the rewards of it. Well, this is this is what I love. Like in the last in the last ten days, you know, the old Phillips curve has been trotted out, and you know, nobody would know what a Phillips curve is, and nor nor do they need to, because it's actually just an ideological tool used to justify a bunch of assumptions about the interaction between wages and employment, which has been proven consistently to be wrong and not real. Yes. So, if somebody is talking to you about a Phillips curve, they want you to believe things are not what they are. That's right. You know, and and again, we've seen it happen, right? So we'll get unemployment figures tomorrow. And of course, unemployment is tipped to still be at quote unquote record lows. Morrison has been saying throughout not just the election campaign but his entire time in parliament really that wages will go up when unemployment goes down. Well, if we've got record unemployment, why do we also have record wage cuts? It's because those two things are not connected in the way that neoliberals and trickle-down economics professors like to pretend they are. The reality is wages are set by power, by policy, and by strength in bargaining. That's why we always talk about joining your union. Join our union. Unionised workplaces do have higher wages. Workers in union are able to bargain with their employer. There is a power rebalancing that happens when people join their union. So you can do that right now, australianunions.org.au slash wow. You can join your union online anytime, day or night. That website will sort you out. Yeah, I just, I, just while we're on the Phillips curve, because we've now mentioned it, the Phillips <laughs> curve is this insistence that if, uh, if employment is high, if more people have a job, right, that wages will go up because employers will be desperate for staff and they will offer potential recruits more money to come and work for them. This is nonsense, nonsense, absolutely nonsense. Because if you are totally disempowered in the workplace, if your union is fined for campaigning on your behalf, if you're not a member of the union, you know, if you are holding down four jobs at once and you have to negotiate job conditions around hours, you can potentially do all of these things, which are set in, which are created by corporate industrial practice and enshrined by government legislating in the interests of corporations, which is the whole reason why the Liberal Party exists, your wages will not go up no matter what 
uh, unemployment figures alike. But even so, so Phillips curve, nonsense. Um, There is no iron law to this. The other thing is that, you know, when we talk about unemployment in this country, we also talk about metrics that don't adequately adequately represent the kind of hours, the work conditions, the stability of employment or anything else that actually represents what a job is. Of course. You know, you're considered employed if you are working, even if you are in ludicrously impermanent conditions and being exploited by your employer on like sham contracts. Yeah, of course, we are. Australia is under the Morrison government a world leader in digital sham contracting, sham contracting, outsourcing, short term contracting, labor hire, uh, casualization. You know, many countries, in fact, most countries in the OECD don't even have the term casual employment. It's not, it, it's not, it's very difficult to compare Australia's uh, labor structure, so how many people are full-time, part-time, casual, et cetera, to international um, figures because we have forms of exploitative employment that simply do not exist in other places. And that is that is a hell of a legacy for the Morrison government because, Van, the other thing is too, this concept that, oh, if unemployment goes down and there are more jobs, then wages will go up as employers desperately try to fill them. Except what we've seen is inflation going up because there is profit to be made here. Profits are up 13%. Sales are up 10%. And CEOs are cashing in increases of 24%. Because if there's anything Alan Joyce, the CEO of Qantas needs, it's more money. And this is, this is the part of the story that economists leave out, that there is a reality around power and profit, the idea that somehow or another or for some reason or another, corporations constantly will produce things no matter what, uh, are in perfect competition with each other, and that competition will drive the cost price to equilibrium, that is essentially zero profit, is a nonsense. Companies will restrict supply in order to jack up prices, in order to get more profit. We've seen this with lumber over the course of the pandemic when there were these like lumber price breakouts all over the world because why would you release a product that everybody wanted when they wanted it? Why wouldn't you stagger out its delivery in order to artificially drive up prices? We've seen that everywhere all over the world. And that's exactly what the figures show. Profits up 13%. So this idea that somehow or another a $1 an hour increase in the minimum wage is going to massively blow up the economy or that's going to drive inflation. Let's be clear here. What's driving inflation is profiteering. It's profiteering, it's restriction of supply, it's poor management, and it's what, you know, old-fashioned economists used to call a capital strike. You know, that's what's going on. And Scott Morrison is saying, vote for me and we'll have more of this, lower wages and higher profits. It's a very, very strange uh, approach to having a democracy. And it's, and it's interesting too, Van, because the markets have now, and I saw, that, saw some, uh, some economists tweeting about this, as soon as those wage figures came out, the Australian dollar dropped a quarter of a US cent. Now, if you look at that in a graph, it's actually quite a big drop. It doesn't sound like a lot in real terms, but it's actually quite a big drop because it means that globally, people think Australia's economy is not very strong and having Australian dollars is not a good idea. Um, that's that's not a ringing endorsement for the Morrison government at this stage. No, it isn't. And it is being reported in international press. These problems with our economy are being discussed internationally in the context of our election because, I mean, there's a a precedent here. If you can win an election by telling people we're going to cut your wages, we're going to sack more public servants, we're going to actually make this country more unfair, what a wonderful um, strategy you have to offer other people who want to treat working people like garbage all over the world. If you just, you know, push the right cultural points and portray yourself in a certain way, the, the, the shadow will triumph over the substance every time. And that, that substance is getting thicker and nastier 
every single day that this election goes on. Yesterday we saw, as people who listen to this show will know, Van, the government uh, in the budget hid away $3 billion in cuts in the line item decisions taken but not yet announced. Well, yesterday it came to light that those cuts will be to the public sector. Um, the ACTU and the CPSU, that's the peak body of Australian unions and the union that represents public sector workers, are saying this will cost 5,500 jobs. 5,500 jobs will be cut. Morrison ministers are somehow or another trying to say that, no, 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 there'll be no job losses. We're going to save $3 billion, but somehow or another that's not going to be result in job losses. I don't quite get that. There's no explanation for that. Um, and, of course, they're saying it's an efficiency dividend. This is, the, this is one of those econobabble words that they love, an efficiency dividend, which means there'll be no job losses. But, of course, there will be, won't there? Yeah, of course they will. And it's what they want. One of the reasons why liberals love destroying the public service is one, we've talked about the fact that unionism is always in higher concentrations in the public servants for service and it empowers workers, which actually helps improve wages and conditions across the economy in the private sector. When public servants win better conditions, jobs in the public service become more desirable and people think, well, why am I working for you know, big garbage corporation co when I could, you know, serve my country and be paid and more. And there's, no, and there's no coincidence that as we've just hit the worst wage figures in 20 years, that public sector wages are at their even worse. They're even worse than private sector wages. Because they have artificial caps on wages that, yeah. have been, that have been introduced by the Morrison government. They are deliberately suppressing the wage claims of public servants. Absolutely they're doing this. And it like they are cutting jobs in the public service as well. Why? Why do they love cutting jobs in the public service? Well, I mean, for the reason, one, that it runs down the capacity of the state to do anything, which creates a pretext for them to privatise things. Oh, the trains are terrible. We've sacked everybody who runs the trains. We've taken money out of the trains. We've done all of these things to run down this sector. So, And now we're going to tell you that the sector just needs to be saved by private investment, so we're going well, to sell it to private corporations. Well, we're seeing we'll then, this. of course, run this as a profit-making business and strip the services that actually provide um, accessibility to people because they're not profitable. Well, I mean, Van, you, you raise a good historical example there with the trains, and we've seen that in just about every state in, in Australia and certainly in many places around the world, but it's also happening right now in the National Disability Insurance Agency where – there is an artificial cap on the number of staff. There is a huge reliance on contractors that's spilling out into the sector in terms of service delivery, as well as the the regulation and the and the regulatory oversight of the NDIS uh, and the use of these incredibly high priced lawyers. I mean, Labor's made lots of announcements around this to say actually we're going to have a proper public sector when it comes to the National Disability Insurance Agency. We're not going to have this kind of nonsense, outsourced, artificially capped uh, uh, body that that isn't really resourced to do what is fundamentally a hugely important piece of nation-building work that impacts the lives of millions of Australians. I think that it's very interesting to consider politically that Labor's been accused of having a small target strategy at this election where Labor's gone, we're actually going to stick to the core principles that we will base policy around and we're not going to get into the weeds on various issues because we know what happens is the Murdoch attack journalists take up everything and, you know, blow up tiny glib statements, everything becomes a gotcha question. It's wise because they've lived through it before, you know, like... I remember the 2016 election, Ben, and Shorten went to the election with 100 positive policies, they called it. And, of course, can you name all 100 in this press conference in the next minute? No, nobody can do that. Yeah. But Labor have been extremely explicit around their NDIS policy, and I appreciate it because so many households are affected by the NDIS. I mean, you hear stories about people who have literally spent more time 
engaging the Administrative Appeals Tribunal to claim their right to NDIS support than they have actually received in hours of NDIS support, which, you know, the appeals process, it turns out to find that they were actually entitled to. It is absolutely extraordinary. And I think it's interesting that the NDIS and the treatment of people on the NDIS has become such a potent electoral issue that releasing more and more detail and speaking to the policies in some depth hasn't actually provoked the kind of scaremongering backlash that you would get around other policy areas. Yeah, absolutely. And and for those in Melbourne, I'm I'm a, I'm helping out at a rally tomorrow um, uh, in in Melbourne around the NDIS, uh, which will be uh, going to the AAT. Uh, check out the uh, check out the uh, uh, Save Our NDIS uh, campaign website for that, because you know people are fed up. They do. Want the NDIS to work? Um, I don't want to get too deeply into the NDIS because we could we could do a whole episode just on that. There, are, of course, no. But I, I do want us to get back to the other reason why the Liberals love cutting public service jobs. And let's just repeat: five thousand public service jobs are on the line yeah. if the Liberals get re-elected. They have committed to that at this stage in the campaign. Going, oh, we're going to cut three point three billion dollars from the public service is no idle claim. That's not something they're thinking of doing. That is something they already plan to do in the budget. Um, I I want people to understand how that works in structural and political terms. So in structural terms, what that means is the, the work still has to be done there's still the the reason why those public servants exist mm. to advise government to you know produce reports to you know you know create yeah, policy strategies the rest of it the government use cutting the public servants to of course outsource to private corporations this is what they do they bring in the consultants consultants after consultants it's a consultorama that goes on particularly with the liberal government and it's not just that they hire consultants the consultants they hire generally have established relationships with their side of politics anyway, as we well yeah. know. There are a lot of former consultants who are current members of the parliamentary liberal and national parties. We know this too. But it means that in terms of the relationship between the, you know, the advice received by ministers and departments and what governments pursue, civil service traditionally exists to give independent expert advice on how to run a society and provide services the government is committed to. When you bring in consultants who are dependent on government favour, it's not independent advice. It's not what consultants do. You get the advice that you pay for. And anybody out there who's a fan of the wonderful show Utopia, a show that I can barely watch because I find it so accurate, it's depressing, where whenever the consultants turn up, it's to give the government the answer that they want to hear. And in terms of looking at the integrity of services and, you know, maintaining quality structures, the provision of social service and the rest of it, you do not get that in an outsourced model. You certainly don't. And and Van, I want to I want to talk about one of the other uh, big announcements that Morrison has made. Of course, they had their Liberal Party launch on Sunday, less than a week before Election Day. Uh, and when you talk about consultants, uh, and to some degree, you know, you've got to put right-wing think tanks in that in that pool as well. One of the big policy pieces that came out in that was that Morrison is going to let people raid their super for a housing deposit. Oh, this is appalling policy. This is disastrous, terrible, awful, no good, very bad policy. And the fact that it's just been launched at the electorate within a week of the election says much. It does, doesn't it? Because it was only on, I think, Friday when Morrison was saying, oh, I know that if I get re-elected, I have to change. He's gone from saying, you know, you know me, you may not like me, but you know me. And, you know, I'm the right guy to lead to, oh, I can be a bit of a bulldozer, but I'm going to change. I'm, I'm going to change to on Sunday launching what is a fundamentally a radical um, right-wing think tank policy uh, six days before the election with no consultation with stakeholders. And no consultation, been, it seems, with his front bench either, which has been fascinating to watch. Because half of them have statements on the record saying that this idea is a bad idea. Of course, historical statements, by which I mean last year, 
<laughs> saying this is a bad idea. Ben, talk us through why this is an incredibly bad idea because I had the great privilege of being in the car with you when this was announced and I've got to say, you know, it was maybe the a podcast to an audience of one but it was sterling, <laughs> sterling analysis. Well, look, I mean the reality of this is that superannuation is designed in such a way as to maximise people's retirement incomes. It means that the money that you earn in your 20s and your 30s builds up compound interest over a long period of time so that when you retire, you do so into a sense of comfort and dignity that you otherwise wouldn't. And for a very long time in this country, in Australia, not anywhere else, I'm not talking about other countries, here in Australia, poverty retirement meant poverty. That's what it meant for, for many, many millions of people for a very long time. What superannuation has allowed us to do is have working class people build a nest egg of capital that generates income in their retirement that they can live off, that sometimes totally replaces the pension. It's so successful for them that it means they're actually earning more than they would on the pension. And But for most people, it means it supplements the pension and lifts their standard of living beyond what the pension provided. That's, that's what it's designed to do, right? The Liberals hate superannuation. John Howard, when he was opposition leader, campaigned against it. He promised he would abolish it when he became prime minister. As prime minister, he froze it in place you refuse to increase it. It's supposed to already be 15%. Most Australians don't know that. It's supposed to be 15 already, and it's not. Because Howard opened it up, let the banks in. We've all seen what happened there, right? The banks came in and profited off the back of other people. When Abbott came in, he froze it dead again. And Morrison, of course, has opened it up. He had people raiding their super during the pandemic. Now he's saying that people can... People who have already raided their super, many have zero left in their super account as it is. You can take 50 grand out of your super, use it for a housing deposit, and when you sell your house, you can put the money back in your super along with any capital gains. Now, this, on the surface of it, if you're a first home buyer, I can see why this might be appealing. It's it's hard to get $100,000 plus, $100,000 plus deposit together. Of course it is. But what this does, and this is analysis that's been published in the ABC, it's been published on news.com. This is this is analysis by actual experts, not Scott Morrison having a brain bubble with Tim Wilson and the IPA at a Liberal Party launch. This will drive up house prices between 8 and 16% for first home buyers, because as soon as they find out you're a first home buyer, they'll go, Right, they can pay a bit more because they'll just take it out of their super. And if you had put, if you had put that fifty thousand dollars into property, right, ten years ago, or into super ten years ago, you would be thirty five thousand dollars worse off. Thirty five thousand dollars worse off if it had gone into property. Now, this is such a bad idea that yes, of course, you've got industry superannuation funds and their peak bodies saying it's a bad idea. You've got unions saying it's a bad idea. You've got Paul Keating who created super saying it's a bad idea. Of course, you would expect that. But you've also got the Financial Services Council of Australia who used to be led by the New South Wales Liberal leader, John Brogdon. You've got the chief economist of Ray White, which is a real estate agent, saying these are quotes. I'm going to quote these. Superannuation for buying owner-occupier housing is not recommended. It, quote, can also lead to far less at retirement. And, quote, the family home is not an asset that can be easily cashed in. I'm sure most of us already knew that, but still. And that the government scheme, and I quote, will make it difficult for first home buyers to get into their next homes. There is nothing about this scheme to recommend it other than to those people who already own multiple properties and want that 8 to 16% bump in price. And that's what Morrison is banking on. He is cutting $35,000 for every 10 years out of people's superannuation, out of their retirement, 
So let's say you're going to retire in 30 years' time. That's almost 100 grand that you might lose in value from your own superannuation. Uh, it, it boggles the mind. Morrison's going into this election promising to cut wages, cut jobs, and cut retirements. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. By the way, I should point out as uh, like as we're talking, Sally McManus from the ACTU has just tweeted an extraordinary statistic that puts all of our discussions into context. And she's she's tweeted, and I'm just going to quote it verbatim because it just really nails what's going on. The thirty, the, sorry, the forty billion dollars in JobKeeper that went to companies that didn't need it equates to an eight dollar an hour increase for the two point six million Australian workers on minimum award wages. <sighs> it's it, it, so Morrison is happy, happy to give that money to companies that don't need it but won't give one-eighth, won't allow a dollar an hour, let alone $8 an hour, won't allow a $1 an hour increase for minimum wage. It shows the priorities. Uh, they're so skewed, such skewed set of priorities from Morrison and his ideological government. It, you know, it boggles the mind. Talk about a bulldozer. You know, people bulldozers wreck things. I mean, Another term of this van, I'm not sure there's going to be much left, you know, forget bulldozer. I think they'll have sowed the salt into the earth, won't they? This is what I'm trying to, like, this is what I'm trying to work out. Like, what is the appeal of Morrison at this point? Like, I mean, it it, it is a really tricky proposition for people like you and I. Like, our values are egalitarian. Yeah. We are proud democratic socialists. We think the point of being human is to empathise and share and that, you know, it's the responsibility of the one to give everything for the rest of the collective. Like fundamentally, that's what we believe. The, the and needs so of the many. The needs of the many do outweigh the needs of the few or the one. But also it's the greatest blessing of all to be the one that can give back to the collective. Like that's yeah. what makes your life dignified and powerful is what you give to other people. You know, it's the loving that you leave behind. And <laughs> For for us, I think we struggle to go. What is the appeal of this guy? Why is anybody still voting for him? I think I think what I, what we're seeing, and and you know, we should let's 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 get into the election, and we'll, we'll come back to. There's another great story I want to talk about about the importance of unions and wins unions can have, even in the context of a Morrison government. But let's get into the election because because there is there is a lot. Of polling coming out that suggests actually it's tightening up, that more people are um, starting to think about re-electing Morrison. Um, of course, six million people have already pre-polled. That was an interesting stat I saw today. Um, and Sportsbet still has Labor at a dollar fifty versus two seventy-five uh, to, to for Morrison. And the polls do all generally show Labor winning, but there are people. Who who are um, who will vote for Morrison? Millions of Australians will vote for the LNP uh, or preference them at the very least. And and Van, I think it's partly a sense of fear, a sense of um, you know, psychologists and economists talk about uh, loss aversion. People are much more afraid of losing something than they are excited about the prospect of gaining something. So it's hard to talk about hope and what we might get from from changing government, whereas if you're in government, it's easy to talk about what you might lose, what, you know, the negatives of change. I think Morrison has done a lot of that this election. He's talked a lot about Labor and why why people shouldn't trust um, Albanese. Of course, most of it is nonsense and garbage, but there's a lot of that out there, and and you're right. It is hard. It is hard to see. Like you know, I watched Albo at the press club today, and he just, you know, he talks about bringing people together, having an employment summit, get working with businesses and unions, and using government as the broker that brings people together to, to find common ground and work through difference. These are all really positive things, right? And but you know, Morrison's out there saying, well. You know, who is this guy? You can't trust this guy. It's all very negative from him. And I yeah, because negative it's just campaigning fear. works. Negative campaigning has always worked. 
And do you think this that's is the what thing. Can anybody think of a single positive vision for this country that Morrison has put forward? No. You know, like I can change. I'm just a bit of a bulldozer. I can change, but I haven't made any mistakes. That interview with Tracy Grimshaw last night was an absolute classic of the genre, I've got to say. Well, he saved Australia, Van. He He saved saved Australia. But, you know, out here in the Cook electorate, you know, where the local Labor candidate, Simon Earle, is one of the best people I've ever met in my life, and I say this quite impartially because this is a man who found out that my mother lived here and that my mother is has terminal cancer and is obviously very sick and came out to the house to meet her. So, like, let's put that in context. Yeah. That's a pretty major thing to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and meant the world to her. Simon, if you're listening, which you probably aren't because you're on the campaign trial, but just, you know, really made my mother at a very vulnerable time of her life when she's, you know, looking at, at the life she's led and what she leaves behind, made her feel very seen, which is a pretty powerful gift to give to someone. Yeah. But, you know, like out here you'll have people go, oh, well, you know, he got us through the pandemic, Morrison. And I'm like, really? Because from uh, it was Daniel Andrews and other state premiers absolutely dragging Morrison, kicking and screaming into mask mandates and border closures and the rest of it. Let's remember premiers had to shut state borders to stop, you know, the movement of people around. The Morrison spookers in the media were all going, let it rip. You know, does it really matter if an old person dies? And can I just say as a person going through end-of-life scenarios with an older person, yeah, it matters if they die. It actually matters if they die. And um, and those that- things let us remember that it was Sally McManus in the union movement who dragged Morrison kicking and screaming towards, you know, a job keeper to keep people in their jobs to have, you know, money keep coming in. All these different organisations who put the screws on Morrison to, you know, provide childcare, unions everywhere, provide childcare, support essential workers, do all of these things. Morrison didn't want to do it. He was made to do it because the country was in absolute catastrophe. He had no plan. Ideologically, he's opposed to free childcare, which is why I got rid of it. He's he's opposed to raising the doll, which is why as soon as he thought he could get away with it, he cut, cut it back down again. He is, of course, extremely ideologically committed to giving millions of dollars of taxpayers' money to corporations that didn't earn it because that's the during legacy of JobKeeper, free money for Jerry Harvey. And, you know, this ridiculous situation we're in, he didn't do a good job. He didn't organise vaccines in time. There are people who are dead. They are dead. Their families are grieving them and they are not coming back because of delays and mismanagement around quarantine and borders and vaccine and health provision and all those things on Morrison's watch. And it was like, you know, if you repeat the I saved Australia, there are people who are indentured, you know, intellectually indentured or spiritually indentured liberal voters who'll go, oh yeah, I oh, know, he did good, Morrison. And it's like the facts just don't they don't support it, in. do they? And it and it is, and you're right, you know, the facts are he backed Clive Palmer's attack on WA. He he attacked Anastasia Palaszczuk in Queensland. He attacked Dan Andrews in Victoria. He backed in Gladys Berejiklian. Even when she was resigning, he was still talking about making her a federal candidate. He called uh, ICAC a kangaroo court. He he has, and there's been judges come out today and go, Morrison's position on ICAC is indefensible. And 31, 31 judges. That's a huge, that is a huge intervention in the in the political debate. And most people that'll kind of wash over, right? Because it's a bit like talking economics. But you know, this idea, I think when Morrison says he saved Australia, what he means is he saved Australia from Labor. I think he's so ideologically ideologically obsessed that that's what he means. I think he means that he has stopped Labor from governing for three years. He has uh, taken the social edges, if you like, off the Labor Premier's capacities to do things. I mean, when I think about what Elbow was talking about today in that National Press Club speech, you know, where he talked about making pay equity an objective of the Fair Work Act, you know, he talked, I've never seen a, a, a non-Indigenous leader in Australia talk as passionately about the Uluru Statement from the Heart as he did today. I, I, I actually, I, I thought he was going to tear up. Like it was, it was a genuine sense of disbelief that people would object to listening to the indigenous people of this country, and he puts it in really good terms. Like it's, it's just good manners. 
Like the the indigenous people of this country have reached out their hand and said, "We have been wronged by this process. We would like to talk to you about it. It's just good manners to listen to them. It's just good manners to enshrine their right to talk to us about it." Like I just you compare that to Morrison's comments today. He's been asked about COVID today, and his comments today are that people die with COVID, but not quote, because of COVID, at a time when Australia now leads the OECD in the number of COVID cases per capita, you know, we are the fifth highest in absolute case numbers. There are countries with populations many, many times our own who have less total cases a day than we're having. 45 Australians are dying every day now from COVID. You know, there's more than twice as many have died just in the first five months of this year than throughout all of 2020 and 2021 combined. And Morrison's just like, well, people will die with COVID. People in aged care homes are dying with COVID, but not because of COVID. As though somehow it's not his responsibility, it's not his job. And, you know, when I weigh that against Albo going, we're going to put nurses in nursing homes, we're going to regulate nursing homes, we're going to have transparency about how they spend the money and what it's on and making sure there's enough hours of care and proper PPE and actually care for people who need care. Whereas Morrison basically going, well, you know, the people in nursing homes die with COVID. They'd have died anyway. Like that's the bit he's not saying, right? Oh, they'd have died anyway. It's like, mate, these are people's parents, their grandparents. You know, their brothers, it's their sisters. It's human life. Human life. Actually human life, which for some of us is quite important. And then you know? on, and on human worth life. Defending, it is worth, worth defending. defending is human life. Well, it is worth defending. And one of the ways that we are defending human life in this country now is through the provision of paid family and domestic violence leave. That was a really good segue, actually, Ben. That was a good segue. <laughs> Thank you. Um, because it has been an extraordinary week for the union movement, who despite all the attacks on them by the Liberal government over the past nine years and previously in the Howard era, everything the Liberals have done to try and break unions and bust unions and restrict their activities the union movement has persisted, it has prevailed, and the extraordinary victory of this week is that a union-led campaign for 10 days of paid domestic violence leave to be written into the National Employment Standards has occurred. They have won. Well, it's been been written into the awards. It's been written into the awards and and Labor has promised to put it in the National Employment Standards. Oh, I'm sorry. That is my mistake. I got so absolutely giddy with the provision that, you know, maybe, just maybe, this country could provide a mechanism for overwhelmingly women fleeing violent situations, trying to protect themselves and sometimes also their children and sometimes also their pets, you know, uh, yeah. for those of you who uh, share my animal rights convictions um, uh, be very aware that house, households where there is violence towards the humans in them often use pets as targets of violence and emotional ma- manipulation of humans as well, um, that those incredibly precarious and awful violent and vulnerable situations do not need to be perpetrated by the threat of complete economic uh, workplace and social collapse now. And and you're so spot on, Van, because... This has been a campaign for a long time. Certainly over the last 10 years, the the union movement in this country and Jed Carney, uh, who's now the member for Cooper, the Labor member for Cooper, tweeted about this, um, that this was something that the ACTU was working on with unions, the ASU, the UWU, the SDA, you know, from all across, all across all kinds of workplaces that we needed paid domestic violence leave. They ran the We Won't Wait campaign um, and kept running it and kept running it and kept running it. And, you know, the Morrison government moved a little bit. They moved and had five days of unpaid leave, which frankly, you know, is totally inadequate to say to people, you can have unpaid time off to deal with the 
repercussions of violence committed against you by an intimate partner is is frankly, people said it at the time, frankly insulting. What this has done, what this putting this in the awards means that there's 2.66 million workers who will be covered and have 10 days paid leave when they need to deal with the consequences of their partner's violence. Uh, and the stats here are horrible. And, I, and you know, I apologize to anyone who for whom this is distressing because it is a difficult topic. One in four women and one in 13 men will experience at least one incident of violence by an intimate partner. 62% of women who experience family and domestic violence are in paid work and have had to use unpaid time to deal with the consequences of their partner's violence, 62%. And, and it- I, I, for people who haven't had the experience of what that means, I, like when you one, – one of the things that constantly gets said around domestic violence is why didn't she leave? Well, she didn't leave maybe because she had nowhere to go, because she thought her partner would kill her if she left, um, because she wasn't supported to leave, because, you know, conditions had been created around her that trapped her in a situation that made her increasingly vulnerable. When people leave violent relationships, they are at their most vulnerable. That is statistically when a partner is most likely to kill you when you leave. And the amount of legal work that you need to do to get, for example, occupancy of your property, you know, the, the, to get your, um, furniture and your, um, possessions to get custody, to get protection of your children, to get intervention orders, to create some sense of safety for yourself. Like it is, it's not just a, oh, you leave. And then the person who has been threatening or abusing you just goes, oh, well, they've left. I'll stop. Like it is an extremely difficult process with a lot of paperwork occurring at the time of your life that you are terrified and distressed. And the idea that, you know, that's something you could sort of do as a hobby in your free time is extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary. It really is. And then look, you know, um, Albanese was asked about this in that press club uh, address today and he said, and I quote, good on the union movement for taking up the case. But the important thing there is like it's nice obviously for the union movement and the workers who have done so much work to get acknowledged. But the the other important element of that is that he has said that a Labor government will introduce legislation to make it an entitlement for everyone. That will expand it to more than 11 million people when it gets into the national employment standards. And Ben, you know, you and I, we talk sometimes about issues where there are fairly clearly going to be big business, business lobbyists who oppose our point of view. I want to be really clear with people about this. The Australian Industry Group, the Business Council of Australia, those those big uh, peak body slash lobbyists for business, companies like Telstra, many big companies are already offering 10 days paid family domestic violence leave to their employees. And in fact, you know, as much as it pains me to give the AIG any credit for anything, I do have to give them credit that they did say to the Morrison government that they should include in their minimum wage submission putting those five days of unpaid family domestic violence leave as paid. So yeah, okay, half measure if that, but still some way towards it. Morrison government has not only refused to support paid family domestic violence leave, the minister responsible and has said, this is Minister Cash, has called the entitlement, and I'm going to quote, a perverse disincentive to hire women. I mean, I just, I, you know, 18 women have been killed this year, and this came up at the press club, killed this year by a partner or a former partner, and ministers of the Morrison government think that somehow or another helping people, predominantly women, get out of those violent situations and have the financial capacity and the job security to be able to do that is somehow a disincentive to hiring women. I mean, it's the same kind of old trope that was wheeled out when they talked about equal pay for women or maternity leave for women. Oh, we won't, people won't hire women because they'll go off and have baby. Like it's, it's just 
so disappointing and angering, I'm sure, for many, many people uh, to hear that that's the Morrison government's view that uh, that they're paid family domestic violence leave is somehow a disincentive to hire women. Uh, but the good news, there's good news for, for 2.66 million people in this country, they will have access to 10 days paid family domestic violence leave. And if Labor wins, that number jumps to 11 million. Clear lines, clear lines in this uh, election, isn't there? Very clear lines. I just want to do a shout out to Georgie Dent from The Parenthood, who has an awesome article out today that you can find online, which is also about the clear line between Liberal and Labor on the issue of childcare. It's a really, really good piece that goes into the policy differences, and I would certainly um, encourage everybody to read it. Well, Van, the election is now three days away, is that right? It is. It's three days away as we speak. Today is Wednesday the 18th of May. You may be listening to this on Thursday the 19th of May. Um, ben and I have a bit of exciting news. Shall we launch into our exciting news is that on Saturday, which is, of course, the day of the election, if you are a fan of this podcast and would like Ben and I to uh, be with you as the election takes place, we, with some friends from the podcast Socially Democratic, you've heard our friend Stephen Donnelly from Socially Democratic on this show before, we will be doing an online election night broadcast. We're starting at 7 o'clock. Um, we will go until 11 o'clock unless it's called in 10 minutes, in which case we'll probably uh, throw a party. Um <laughs> But we will be doing that as an internet telecast. You can find it through the Week on Wednesday Facebook page, through my Van Batten Facebook page, through Socially Democratic Facebook page, um, and we and all of our friends will obviously be promoting this over the course of the next couple of days. We'll be there from when the polls close and the counting starts, calling up our friends, getting booth breakdowns and interesting facts and stats. We will cross to Anthony Green in the really important bits when he does his act. We know that's very popular. We have no desire to compete with that. No. But we will be there to get you through it if you'd like to join us online that night. So don't forget to get out, vote early, vote often. Isn't that what they say? Um you can only vote once. Please don't try and vote more than once. There's enough of that conspiracy theory going around as it is. But you can join Van and I and some very interesting people, including I think we're going to have some former MPs, some people from think tanks. I think, you know, we might have quite quite the roster of very interesting and insightful commentary about what's happening as it happens uh, and look, you know, it's, it'll be live, so I'm sure everything will go wrong and it will be uh, a great fun to watch and have a laugh with us as we go through it together. Ben, we should have some good news because, of course, this has been a marathon election and, you know, the listeners of the week on Wednesday have stuck with us now for 18 months. We've talked about politics. We've talked about COVID. We've talked about all sorts of important issues of course, you know, at the heart of it, we've always tried to come back to the issues that impact Australians uh, here and in the workplace, at home. But there's been some really good news for Australia, for an Australian island that has managed to get rid of all of its rats. It's so good. Lord Howe Island, a very popular uh, place, one of the jewels of this beautiful continent, um, has eradicated its entire rat and mouse plague. Could this be a sign? Because once the rat and mouse plague is eradicated, banished from the island after appearing in 1918 and wreaking total environmental chaos, it took three years to eradicate them. That's uh, also an interesting, potentially portentous uh, announcement. But the ecosystem is recovering. Fruiting trees um, are fruiting again after years of not fruiting. There are people alive today who had never seen those trees fruit and they're fruiting again because the rats and mice have gone. Four species of snail, one of which people thought had been extinct for 20 years, have come back. Crickets have come back. The black-winged petrel, uh, which is one of Australia's rarest birds, it is back. So is the flightless wood hen. Um, they have doubled their population from 200 to 460 
uh, since the eradication of rats and mice. It is being described as an ecological renaissance. And, you know, quite frankly, Ben, I could do with a few more of those as the as the adorable environmentalist in the corner who often is very upset um, by the impacts of human activity on the world. I've got to say eradication of rats and mice from Lord Howe Island that's awesome. I think it's. I think it's awesome. I hope it's a portent of things to come. I. I, I like that it's. Uh, you know, obviously, three years probably felt like a very long time for the people of Lord Howe Island when they started that program. Uh, given that it had been a hundred years of, of rat infestation, but you know, I feel like there's some really nice parallels here, and hopefully, come Sunday we can we can. Feel get rid of the rats and the trees will fruit again, people. <laughs> That's right. Get rid of the rats and the trees will fruit again. Now, speaking of trees that are fruiting, of course, the week on Wednesday has grown immensely. The audience is just every month more and more people are listening and it's because people who listen, share, like, uh, comment, you know, they write to us, they engage, they check out our supporter page, Van. That's www.buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. And they contribute. And those contributions mean that we can get the message to more people, even during this election campaign, when I can tell you the cost of trying to advertise and get in front of people has been much, much higher than it was before. We have managed to continue to grow the audience thanks to our cadre extend the reach and our buck a week members. And as always, we want to give a big shout out to each and every one of our cadre and extend the reach members. Do you want to give them a shout out or do you want me to do it, Vanny? Oh, I'm going to do it because I love doing it. Uh, makes me feel like I justified my hexed drama school. All right. <laughs> Kerry at Jane C. Campbell. Leona Gibbons, someone, punch drunk veteran, at Jenny Foster 7, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, no Twitter for me, wise, Hannah Honda, Sam Harriet, Alexandra Sutherland, Matt Bush, no relation, Christine Cole, Richard Sands, I am not on Twitter, Glade Robbie, Brash Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Atlee Archer, Linda Cartwright, Atlee Ann Shingles, Louise Moran, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Cara and Will Robinson, Narissa Simon, at Catagal, Lauren and Ash, Matthew Hadley, at Naronga Man, John Sharpen, Peter Barth, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, slash Red, White and Blue Lou, Bronwyn, um, and then there are our Extending the Reach supporters, Vita W, Tanya George, Nandita Hannum, Bill Collis, Maury Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Belinda Bravo, Sandy Honan, at Galvest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter. I've got to come up with a new joke. Sarah, Bo Sullivan, Eliane and Andrew, Ivor Spillett, Jennifer Berkeley, Andrew Bryant, Murrow James, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Kip Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Bunkum Basher, Katie Ward, at The Real Never Longbody, Sandy Baumgart, at Not Sandy B, Melody Patterson, Renee McGee, Stuart Munn, uh, Mazritza at Carriedale 68, Frank NYH, Erica Pizzuti at Didums, Claire, Joe Lapino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry, Arthur, Pauline Bate, Adrian Valente. We could not do this without you. We have 300 other supporters who um, support us with a buck a week donation as well. It is just incredible that we receive so much support and you've really helped us get this show into more ears and more places and really have an impact on the conversation. We keep seeing things we say on this show turn up in some interesting places, Ben, do we not? We certainly do. We certainly do. It has been amazing to see uh, how some of the lines that we discuss here appear in the national debate in other places uh, from other spokespeople who have much larger audiences than we do. And I've got to say, please feel free, whatever you hear on this show, feel free to share it. Have the conversations with your neighbours and family members and friends. You know, like there, are, there's no copyright on ideas. You are allowed to share them. Absolutely. We encourage it because, of course, now the election will happen on Saturday. It's important that people remember to put the Liberals last wherever you are around the country. As I always say, vote one Labor put the Liberals last, number the rest of the nutters however you feel. Uh, you know, I know a lot of people out there feel, oh, I want to vote independent, I'm not comfortable with Labor, whatever it might be. Look, at this point, Van, I think we have to be, we have to just be real with people. We've given you the facts about the policies. We've outlined the impacts that they have on people's lives. If you still, if you still don't feel you can vote Labor, 
at least, at the very least, put the Liberals last and make sure that Scott Morrison is not the Prime Minister come Sunday the 22nd of May. If you do that much, if you'll do that much, you at least give the rest of the country a chance. That's that's what I'm asking people to do. I think that's fair. Do you think that's fair? Oh, look, I'm in 100%. <laughs> You know, I've always been very honest uh, about my political beliefs. When I started publishing political material, I didn't want to be one of those people who pretended to be impartial and neutral when they weren't. You know, I have ideological skin in this game. I have a vision of this country as a fairer place with greater opportunity to be experienced by more and more people. Like, I fundamentally believe in the project of Australian egalitarianism and I am not going to shy away from that anywhere. You know, I'm not going to pretend that things are comparable when they're not. And I think it's, you know, from everything we say and do on this show, you know, that's the conversation that we're trying to build because we think, we genuinely believe the majority of Australians share those values as well. And I hope that we prevail on Saturday. Absolutely. Well, until then, hopefully... If you're listening, you'll join us on Saturday night. Don't forget to check uh, all the links, Facebook, Twitter, wherever you've been, wherever you got this, you'll see links to the uh, the broadcast on Saturday. And, of course, Van, you and I will get to see each other as well, which would be great. I that miss you so much. Totally amazing. I hope they let us have the dog in the TV studio. We can cross <laughs> our fingers. It could still happen. In the yeah. meantime, though, Ben, look after the dog. I will, as always. Love you, Vanny. Love you too. Take care, everyone. Bye.